knowledge is that Christianity isn't always talked about in terms of its newness or in terms of being a new life. Oftentimes Christianity, whether it's by Christians or non-Christians, is thought about and talked about in terms of uh, whether the person's life is different or better, modified or changed, which all uh, is part of Christianity. But the basis of Christianity is we come into it with an old life and exercise a new life inside of it. And one of the things we continued to say was that Christianity doesn't always seem new, especially even to Christians. Um, it's not something we always experience, this fresh newness every day of our lives as Christians, and we noticed that. Um, and one of the main reasons that it doesn't always feel new, that our experience in Christianity is not always this um, splash of, uh, you know, fresh water, or breath of fresh air, but it sometimes can feel a little bit stagnant is that we remain focused solely upon what we're experiencing inside, and that's it. Christianity being new, the newness, is not just an internal explosion or sensation that happens on a daily basis. So when you become a Christian and live as a Christian, and we say that it's a new life and we're to walk in the newness of this life, doesn't just mean that every morning you wake up and you're a Christian, you have this internal combustion of newness that you feel. That's not always how it goes. Um, but rather, it's those individuals that have become Christians constantly responding and living in the realities of the newness of what Christianity really is. The reality of what Jesus Christ has now made new for us. And what we tried to draw out as an illustration the last couple weeks is this. Uh, those of you that might be familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the um, series of novels that C.S. Lewis wrote, um, Narnia is this world that people enter into. And in this world, those that come to it know who they are. They're, they're the same people. They have the same name. They have the same characteristics. They recognize who they are. But when they come into this world that is new, they have to respond to the new realities of this world. And as they do that, they themselves become new people. Well, in Jesus Christ, there are new realities that the world has never known, that the world has never seen, that those, be, those that live before Jesus and those that live outside of Jesus don't know about these realities. And as you learn and understand what these realities are and you respond to them, you yourselves become new daily, day after day. That's why meditating and learning the gospel and, and reflecting upon it constantly is what matters most to us. So far in Romans 8, we've learned some new realities. Let me tell you them. Verse 1 tells us that those who are in Christ Jesus, they are not under what the Bible calls condemnation, meaning the judgment that comes down to us for the wrongs that we have committed. We are not under that anymore. It also says in verse 2 that we have been set free from sin. You see how those are actually objective things? Those aren't just internal experiences, but those are objective realities that you either live believing or not believing. And a person that looks at that and says, Who, whoever is in Christ has no condemnation and is set free from sin. We can respond to that daily and we become new people the more we learn and live out of that. Number three, he says in verse three that we have the gift of righteousness. 
It's given to us. It's not earned. And if you, um, you know, the word righteousness sort of has a very religious overtone to it, um, mainly because it comes out of the religious world. But the word righteousness just means to be acceptable because you have done that which is right. And the problem is what we've lost in the world is the sense of righteousness. All of us have lost that because of sin and we're working to get that back. And the Bible presents this ugly reality that you and I cannot of our own selves produce righteousness. But what Christianity offers is the gift of righteousness. And if you'll accept that reality and live that you receive your righteousness as a gift, that objective reality will begin to make you a new person. And finally, he says in verse 4 that you and I can have life. Um, that word life means fullness of life, the fullness of what we're supposed to have and peace if we walk um, responding to these new realities. People that know these realities and respond to them by living and submitting to the Spirit of God, which means centering our lives around Him, because we now believe that these realities are true, that if we're in Christ, we no longer have condemnation, that we're free from sin and free from death, that we have righteousness now as a gift. We don't have to keep trying to earn it. We actually have it as a gift. Those that know that begin following the Spirit of God, which is found in Scripture and also in the believer. And we center our lives around Him. We finished last week in verse 4 seeing this, that there's really only two options for what you can build your life around. Paul says it this way in verse 4, you can either live according to the flesh or you can live according to the Spirit. One of two ways that we can build our lives around flesh or spirit. And what shows up in our text tonight in verse 5, if you read along with, um, with Craig, you noticed something shows up alongside of this flesh and spirit dialogue. Look back in verse 5 again. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, there it is again, set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The reoccurring theme that we're gonna look at tonight is this, that inside of the world of Christianity is offered to each and every one of us a new mindset where we place our minds. And there is a reality outside of Jesus Christ where we set our minds that will eventually lead us to death, um, that, that will suffocate our lives, that does not bring us peace, that does not bring us joy. But inside of Christianity, when you are submitting, and led by, submitting to the Spirit and led by the Spirit, living in these new realities that were bought by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can have a new mindset that brings life and that brings peace. So simple tonight, here's what we're going to try to do when we talk about our mindset. Number one, what is your mind really? Let's, let's make sure we understand what a mind really is. Number two, why it's important. Number three, how do we get that mindset right? Pretty easy, right? Everybody good to go? Okay, let's do it. Ask yourself, first of all, what is your mind? <laughs> right? Um, it's interesting to think about. The English word mind is... Uh, kind of difficult for us to understand because most often we translate intellectually to think that that's just our cognition, you know, just what we think, maybe, maybe even just what we know. 
And we separate oftentimes our mind. And in America, uh, the phrase we often most use is like our heart or our feelings. You know, like, like those two things are separate. Well, in the first century, when Paul was writing this, when he would use the word mind, what he was talking about, in, in the literal anatomical sense, the word mind means the muscles that surround li like the diaphragm area. Th that's what it meant. And what they were talking about was the seat of the human being that drove his or her behavior. The part of the person that steered that human where they would go. And so this involved the intellect, what you thought. This involved the person's beliefs. And this involved the emotions and, and the will and the desire of the person. All of that came together to describe what they called the mind. And I think the word that we're most often using today um, to encompass this in America right now is the word feelings or feel. Have you noticed um, how often, whether it's on television, um, whether somebody's being interviewed in a, print, in, you know, in a print edition or on the web or something like that, Almost always the, the follow-up question to something that has happened is, how do you feel about it? You ever, you ever notice that? It's so frequent now. Um, we, we are obsessed with that question. And what they're not, they're, they're not just asking, are you happy or are you sad, are they? When they say, how do you feel about you know, the upcoming election or how do you feel about the economy? People aren't asking, are you just happy or are you sad? What they're wanting is more than just your intellectual response. They're wanting to know how are you being driven by that reality. When you think about the election, how is that driving you? Not just your emotions, but also your mind. So that word feeling is sort of capturing that. When we say the word mind from Scripture, what he's really talking about is this place in us where you and I reason, where we reflect, retell stories of what happened today, you, you will, if you think about this afternoon or this evening when you go home tonight and you reflect on what took place, you'll be using your mind to do that. You'll be retelling yourself the story of today in your mind. It's the place where you think, where you contemplate things. Your mind is the place where you make judgments. Is this good? Is this bad? Was this right? Was this wrong? Is he, is he um, you know, being right to me or good to me? Is he being bad to me or wrong to me? Should I trust him? Should I not? That's your mind. And it's ultimately where you make conclusions. So you see, it's more than just your ability to take a test at school, your mind. And it's more than just, are you happy or are you sad? How do you feel? It is the seat of all of who you really are, your mind. But our minds, we know this, I think. I think all of us would agree, I hope, to this extent. Now, whether we hold ourselves accountable to this belief or not, we should believe this. That our minds are not always accurate. Your mind is not always right. When you go home and you think about an interaction you had with somebody and you begin to tell yourself the story of their intentions and their motivations and you start working yourself up, up getting frustrated with somebody, right? And your mind is telling you that so-and-so meant this with this the way and they tried to hurt me this way and your mind is doing that. Sometimes your mind is actually wrong. Would you agree? Sometimes your mind is wrong when you make conclusions about things and you've brought in all the information that you know inside yourself, sometimes there's information outside of what you know and you're wrong. Your mind is wrong. Sometimes we perceive things wrong. 
meaning our mind is not right. Well, what's up with that? Why, why is our mind not right? Well, here's how Paul would say in Ephesians 4. He was telling those who were lost in sin, brought into Jesus Christ, the process to them becoming new people, he said this, that you need to be renewed, restored, refreshed in the spirit of your mind. So he wasn't just saying, hey, um, you who are not a Christian, when you become a Christian, you just need to learn new information so that you can fill in the scantron uh, more accurately so that you can make your scantrons a little bubble. Everybody look kind of, everybody good? Do they still use scantron? Oh, man. Yeah, do you go B when you don't know the answer? Guess B? Or, yeah, always guess B. It's like, it's like, always guess B, just color that in. Okay, so when you become a Christian, the, answer, the, the, the idea is not, I just need to more accurately fill in the scantron so that I can get into heaven. I, I just need more information or better information. The idea of being, becoming a Christian is that your mind actually changes the way you view the world. The spirit of your mind needs to be renewed. It needs to be refreshed because in sin we've lost this. So he says, um, let me say it this way, that our mind is more than just an elaborate computer that sends and receives data. It's more than that. Your mind right now has a posture and an attitude. It has a disposition that doesn't just receive information and send information, but your mind has an attitude and a disposition that colors all that it does. Your mind is the filter by which you interpret and understand the world and the events in the world. It's how you see the world. That makes your mind really important. And what you set your mind to, really important. And we don't understand sometimes in our humanity um, that our mind is powerful. We take it for granted. We're kind of loose with it. We don't really ask ourselves reflective questions to say, is my mind thinking properly? Out of our pride, we just boast ourselves up and say, yeah, I know. I know what I'm doing. And never check our own mind to say, am I really looking at the world properly? And what we find in chapter 8, verse 7 of Romans there in our text is that the mind of God, or I'm sorry, excuse me, the mind of humanity, when it is affected by sin, is hostile towards this one concept, that God is supreme, that he is my maker, that as I take a step back, I realize that I had no power in raising the sun today. Somebody else did that. That when I take a step back, I have no power to make my lungs fill up and close and keep going. That I have no power in and of myself to keep this heart in my chest beating of myself. That outside of me, that could stop in this moment. That outside of me, the sun might not come up tomorrow, but that's not my power. But we're hostile towards the concept that there's something greater than us, that there's something supreme above us. Every one of us because of sin. And this is a universal problem of mankind and what it is it caused is this idea that we have learned our mind now does, here's, here's, the, here's the basis of our mind under sin. That we have learned self-trust, self-interest, and I'll add self-preservation is the default aspect of our mind. That the person I trust is me, 
because no one else is smarter than me, that the person I'm interested in is me because no one is more valuable than me, and the person that I seek to preserve more than anything else in this world is me. That's how a mind with sin views the world. Now just watch the world and tell me that's not true. Watch yourself and tell you that's not true. That the person by default who you trust the most is you. And the person that you're interested in the most is you. People in my life that frustrate me the most, most often are interrupting with my ability to be selfish. My mind affected by sin is self-trusting and self-interested. Okay, so we've got a problem with our mind. Now, why, we're, we're going to get to this healing in a moment. Why is my mind so important? I, I think we can see um, so far, but let me give you a couple things. Uh, first of all, look in verse 5. Your mind dictates your behavior. Read verse 5 with me again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, Paul writes this section of Scripture. If you read, again, like what the section that Craig read, verses 5 through 8, you'll notice that Paul does not write this section of Scripture in the command form. He doesn't say, you shall set your mind on the Spirit. Does that, are you with me? It's not written in the command form. Now, we can deduce and we can, we can infer what we should do, but he's writing this in an observation form. What he's saying is, as I look at people, as I observe humans and I observe myself, here's what I learn, here's what I know, Paul's saying. Those who have set their minds on the flesh, those are the people that live according to the flesh. And the people that set their minds on the Spirit are the ones that live according to the Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. Your mindset, where you place your mind, dictates how you live. How important is your mind? Why is your mind important? Because your mind drives your behavior. Um, and this is very, very important for us to understand that our mind is actually the thing that sets the course for our behavior. Now, especially in Christianity, but outside of even Christianity, people are pretty interested in their behavior. Uh, would you all agree that we're, we're all pretty uh, interested in how we act and how we behave? In fact, there's a whole field of study called sociology that is studying how people behave and why they behave certain ways and how behavior can change. Humanity, whether you're religious or not, is interested in behavior changing. All of us are. Um, outside of religion, it's called self-help. And you can go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com and you can find all kinds of books that will tell you how to make your behavior better. So be, uh, behavior becoming better is not just a religious thing. Everybody's doing this. This is why we go to college. This is why we um, get mentors. This is why we read books. This is why we try to alter and change things in our lives because we say, where I am right now, my behavior needs to improve so better things will happen to me. We all agree with that. Um, so we're all kind of hovering around the idea that our behavior matters. But where we get tripped up is, is in this idea of how do I actually change my behavior? How will my behavior actually be different? And what most people do is they recognize that I don't like certain behaviors in my life, therefore I'm gonna work on that behavior. Uh, I don't like the fact that I don't eat health, or I don't eat healthy food, so I'm gonna start eating healthy food. That's just behavior change. How long does that last? Are we in May right now? How you guys doing? 
I want to work out more, right? That's a behavior because I don't work out enough. And so people say, I'm going to work out more. That's just a behavior thought. How long does that last? When we begin with our behavior and then just go to our behavior to try to change our behavior, we don't really actually ever change. Okay? Um, What we really need to realize is that our mindset drives our behavior. What we think about things drives our behavior. And even further, it's not just your mindset. It's actually your beliefs. Beliefs shape mindsets which drive behavior. Why is your mind important? Because it's the thing that is driving how you live day to day. So if there are things in your life that you want to change, that you recognize for those that are Christians in this room, some of you may not be Christians, but those that are Christians, when you lay scripture on top of your life and say, scripture promises the Christian fullness of joy, peace, and and tranquility and all these things. And as I lay scripture on top of my life, I don't have those things. And there's areas in my life that need to change. When you recognize that, how do you go about getting those behaviors to change? That's what Paul's talking about here. And it doesn't just start with you saying, I'm going to do a different behavior tomorrow. It doesn't start there. You've got to go backwards. Let me try to give you a few examples so you can see how this works. But before I do, I want to say one thing. That mindset is not the thing that saves your life. The gospel is. So Christianity is not just another version of self-help. Christianity is not something that comes to you and says, hey, if you just change your mind, you'll change your life. It's not a program like that. That's why this is about beliefs, because the gospel of Jesus Christ first confronts all of your false beliefs and then affirms the true beliefs that you should believe. And the gospel shapes your beliefs, which then will dictate your mindset, which will change your life. And I'm going to try to walk you through that here in a moment. But I want you to know that Christianity is not just something that says a new way of thinking changes your life. No, the gospel is what changes your life. And so, so often people want their behavior to change, but they do nothing about their mind or their beliefs. Now, let me try to walk you through a few examples. So let's, let's start with one that's kind of simple. The behavior, texting while driving. Nobody in this room has ever done that. So I'm really glad I'm just giving you this example so that you can use it with your friends, right? Texting while driving. Would you all agree that's a behavior we should change? We generally, just, you know, we. Is that a behavior that should change, texting while driving? So I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to say, I'm not going to text and drive anymore, I'm done. Will that change my behavior? (laughs) What's the mindset that says I should text while I'm driving? Just, what's the mindset? Your mind tells you this one text is really important. Right? That's the mindset. This one message that come in, I, I just, I wouldn't do it, but this is really important. This text message is very important. But what's the belief that makes your mind really say that? What's the belief? Think about this. I'm really not going to hurt anyone this time. The belief in that moment is there's not a lot of cars on the road. I'm a pretty safe driver. Everybody's going the same speed. It will be quick. And the belief, the core belief is this. I'm probably not going to hurt anybody. And in that moment, because you believe that you're not going to hurt somebody, your mind says, this is important. Now, would you say a text message is more important than a human life? Anybody in here? If you would, don't raise your hand right now. Just 
We, we know that, right? But because our belief says, I'm not going to hurt somebody, we then give ourselves permissions to think this is important, and then we do the behavior, check the message, and then quickly send one back. So how do you change the behavior? The belief is, I can hurt somebody, and you can. And if that belief is real to you, you will look at that phone and say, it's not more important than somebody's life. Does that make sense? That simple example? All right, let's get a little more personal, okay? You ready? What about lying? Christianity is a religion, like many places, that say that lying is not a commendable behavior. And if you find yourself struggling with lying, that's a sin that you commit, that you don't want to commit anymore, how are you going to stop lying? Are you going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know what? Today's a new day. I will not lie again. I'm, I'm just telling myself I'm committed. I'm not going to lie. How are you going to do that? Well, let's draw back. What is the mindset that says I should lie right now to you? Well, the mindset is this. What I'm going to tell you, you will not know if it's a lie. So then I can say it. The mindset is this person, if I'm talking to Ken Davis and I want so bad to tell him a lie, my mindset is Ken does not have the capacity to know that this is not true. Everybody follow me? But what's the belief that drives me to think that? Ken's approval is the thing that gives me life. If Ken approves of me and I'm scared to tell him what's true because he might be upset with me, if I tell him what's actually true right now, he's going to be upset with me. And him being happy with me is the thing that matters most to me. That belief. And so then, if I know, if, if the thing that matters most to me is Ken thinking I'm a great guy, in that moment I know Ken does not have the capacity to figure out if I'm lying or telling the truth. I can lie. And my behavior is I'm going to lie because I want Ken to think I'm impressive. Follow me? So what, i got to change my beliefs. How about, uh, let me go quicker, overcommitting. Anybody overpromise? Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I can do that. No problem, I'll do that. you got nine promises, and you're overcommitted, and you're overexhausted, and you can't upfill them all? What's the mindset? I am the person expected to do everything. I'm the one who has to do everything. And someone, someone, someone says, can anybody do da-da-da-da? And you're like, and your hand shakes, you know? You're like, it's got to be me. I, oh, man, no one's... I've got to do it. Why do we overcommit, though? How are you going to stop overcommitting? The belief is this. Because when I do things, people accept me, and that's how I'm approved. The more I do, the more people will accept me. All right, how about criticizing? The behavior of being critical all the time. I'm not just talking about, um, you know, looking at things, concluding things. I'm saying the spirit of being critical. You know when this becomes habit to you? Like anything anybody does, you just have this like little slight in your mind. Now, come on, let's be honest with ourselves at least. Constantly reviewing people's behaviors, people's words with constant criticism in your mind. What gives you, the, what mindset gives you the permission to live that way? Why, why do we do that? Well, here's our mindset. These people do all things all wrong. And we feel justified in being critical all the time because of the mindset that says, I know these people always do things wrong. Man, they do things wrong. They're raising their kids wrong. They're doing their job wrong. Man, they're mowing their grass the wrong way. Like, like we're just always, like, like our mind is thinking they're always doing things wrong. But what's the belief that drives that mindset? 
the way I do things is right. So the way I mow my grass, the way I do my job, the way I raise my kids, the way I drive my car, the way I drive, the way I do things is always right. And so that gives me the mindset that whatever you're doing is wrong, which gives me the behavior that I'm going to criticize every chance I get. Now, I put a little note under this one just to kind of prod at you a little bit farther. Because this belief is usually not the way I do things is right. It's usually this. Um, The way I do things has to be right. And so I need people to be wrong so that I always feel right. It's not that you actually always think that you are right. You just actually need people to always be messing up so that you feel better about yourself. That's the belief. Now, let me show you something. The gospel of Jesus Christ confronts every one of these beliefs and changes it. Underlying, when the gospel comes and says Jesus died and gives you a righteousness that makes you approved by God, by grace, not by your works, how am I approved now in front of God? By what I do or by what Jesus did? And I have the approval now because of Jesus, of the almighty God. So if Ken doesn't like me today, am I okay? Am I now free to just tell the truth because I have the approval of the Almighty God in heaven. All right, number two, I'm accepted by what I do. How, because of the gospel, are we accepted in Jesus Christ? By what we do or who we trust? You tell me. What we do or who we trust? So I'm not saved by what I do and all the things, all the the activities I take on, am I? And when you believe that in the gospel, all of a sudden, guess what you get to do? Maybe I don't have to volunteer for everything to try to earn my salvation. Or how about the way I do things is right? Does the gospel verify that or contradict that? Did Jesus go to the cross because you were always right? Do you you see what I'm getting at? When the gospel confronts your beliefs and reshapes them into right beliefs, it changes your mindset, which changes your behaviors. In Christianity, this is what makes Christianity different than any other world religion, any other philosophy, any other way of thinking, is that it gives you the answer to change your beliefs, to change your mind, to change your life. It doesn't just say you ought to change your life, grit your teeth, white knuckles, you can be better, you ought to do it, you need inspiration every day from... No, it changes your beliefs and gives you reality about the world and about God and about Jesus and about yourself, which changes your life. And if you look at all these mindsets, look at all these mindsets. Very important. This person won't know. I'm expected to do everything. These people do things all wrong. All of these mindsets are mindsets of the flesh because they're mindsets of temporary things, not eternal. As you saw earlier in Romans chapter 8, that a mind that is set on the flesh is death, not life. Oh, I didn't forget to give you that one. Sorry. So why is the mind important? It dictates behavior. It determines your experience. A mind that is set on the flesh, temporary things, that's what flesh means, things that are just temporary, is death. It's going to end up killing you. If all I care about is that text message in that moment or Ken's approval or overcommitting myself or always being critical of people doing things wrong, I will constantly be overworked, stressed out, not happy. I won't have joy. But if I have my mind set on the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, I will have life and peace. You see, when your beliefs are not shaped by the new realities of the gospel, and your mind remains on temporary things, you are enslaved to your circumstances going well. And when they don't, 
your life will be wrecked. But when the gospel confronts and changes your beliefs, it gives you life and peace. Um, peace that transcends all the circumstances you might experience. Let me give you just a few examples. Perhaps you're overlooked at work. Maybe you worked really hard and you've done something well and somebody else gets credit for that. A mindset that is on temporary things can't deal with that. It'll be frustrated, right? It will have to go tell the boss. It will have to have an outburst at this coworker. It will be frustrated. It'll have anger. It'll have wrath if your mind is set just on the temporary because you've got to get that approval and that acceptance of that boss so that things will be okay. But a mind that's set on the spirit knows that there's something that's greater that's coming for us. Or maybe you're at school. Uh, maybe you're a young person and um, you're slighted by some people in a social setting. A mind that is set on the temporary can't handle that. It'll frustrate that mind. But a mind that is set on the spirit can handle that because it has from God all that it needs. Maybe you're criticized by those that are close to you, maybe in your home or with your friends. A mind that is set on the flesh can't handle that because it needs not, it can't handle being criticized. Because in the temporary, here and now, I can't be criticized, I've got to be praised. But if your mind is set on the eternal things, you know that someday there will be a God who gives you all that you need. You see, when you are um, responding to the realities of the gospel, you have everything your heart needs. So you're actually now free to love those who might even be the ones hurting you because you know that they're actually experiencing hurt and difficulty in this life. And because you have all that you need in the gospel, you're now free to care about people who need cared for in this life. You have life and peace because you have your mind on eternity. And what you've experienced here, however painful it may be, does not compare to what you have in Jesus Christ. If you want to have a new mind, you've got to get new things from Jesus Christ, not just from this world. So finally, how is our mindset right? The only place mindset is set in the command is Colossians 3. Let me read this for you. Paul, again, the same author as Romans, says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And here he commands you. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are of the earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So how do we get our minds set right? Now, the command from Paul is simple. Set your mind on things above. But how do you do it? What's Paul really telling us? Look at what surrounds that command. Here's what Paul is saying. When the realities, remember, this is outside of you. The newness of Christianity is first outside of you before it's ever inside of you. When the realities of Jesus Christ finally become reality to you, your mind will instantly, naturally shift from temporary to eternal. When what is objectively true about Jesus becomes subjectively real to you, your mind will instantly go from caring so much about the temporary to lifting above to the eternal. Well, what's true about Jesus? If you look at the first part, he says you've been raised with Christ. That means Christ was raised. First, that means that he was not raised. He was dead. Do you know that Christ was dead? Do you believe that reality? Why he was dead? Dead because of our sin. 
Meaning he went to the cross of his own choice because he loved us so much that he would not let us go to eternal death. That's how much he loved you. Do you know that reality? It says also that he was raised, meaning that he was buried, meaning he went into the place where all dead people go like we will go. And it says that he was raised, meaning he came back from that place as our trailblazer. And what it means is this, that God who allowed that sacrifice to be offered, Jesus Christ, when he raised him from the dead, said that that sacrifice of Jesus was acceptable. Therefore, I can now accept you in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was dead and is now resurrected? Because that belief has massive implications. And we pay a lot of lip service to that belief, but is that belief really changing the way you think? Is he no longer in the grave? Is he resurrected? And you have to ask yourself that question and go find the answer to it because there are answers to it. It says also that he is seated at the right hand of God. What's he doing there? He's advocating for you to the Father saying he or she is one of mine. Do you believe that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, knows your name and says I know you and you're one of mine? When you know that, your mind immediately goes from temporary to eternal. It says also that Christ is coming just as he came before and just as he went away, he will come again. Do you believe that reality that he will come again and do you know what he's going to do when he does? He says ultimately at the end there, when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That when he comes, this ultimate reality that Christ is going to share with us his glory, meaning the deepest needs of the human heart are going to be met, not just now in the sense in which we're Christians, but ultimately solved in the coming of Jesus Christ. Do you have your hope set that everything I've ever wanted, everything I've ever needed, the world that I've always wanted to live in, the person that I've always wanted to be will finally be consummated when Jesus Christ returns. And when you believe the realities of Jesus and the gospel, your beliefs will change, your mind will be set on eternal, not temporary, and then you as a Christian will start to experience new life. Don't just start with your behavior and promise to God you're going to do better. Go back to the gospel and challenge your beliefs and see if they hold up. And when they need to be challenged, let them be challenged. When they need to be changed, have the faith to change your beliefs so your mind will change and your heart will be set on eternity, not temporary. Uh, we're here to help if anyone needs to do that. Like always, um, you can come as we stand and sing.